This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is April 12th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, my name is Anthony Curran, and I was at WRHU from the fall of 1995 until the spring of 1999. Okay, and what shows or programs did you work on? Uh, I did mostly sports, but I also did a little bit of the Jazz Cafe. Um, I, I did classical music as well in the morning, mm-hmm. um, did Newsline, uh, did sports on the morning show at times, um, but most of my work was in the sports department. Okay. Did you work on any of the weekend programs or community service programs? Uh, only the locker room. I don't think that counts. It wasn't really, you know, it was our sports weekend program, but that was about it. Okay. But that's an important one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any titles or positions at the station? Uh, for one semester, I was a studio manager. I, w- I wasn't really, at the end of the day, all that interested in management. I, I dabbled in it just to uh, give it a try. But I was studio manager, which basically meant I made sure all the studios had the supplies they needed. And I reported directly to the executive engineer, who I believe at that point was Joe Ramore. But other than that, not really. Okay, very good. Uh, did you use your own name on the air? Did you have any nicknames? Uh, everybody just called me AC. But yes, I used my own name on the air. Um, no, no nicknames aside from AC, which seems to have stuck for the rest of my life. Okay. That's a pretty good one. Um, so I'm curious always, what is it that brings people to the radio station? And then if you could describe what the station was like when you got there, maybe people that you met, what first brought you to Hofstra radio? I can answer that in two words, Heather Cohen. Um, I don't know if you've talked to Heather yet, but, um, let me put it this way. I was taking, it was my, the fall, no, the spring of my freshman year. Uh, so this would have been spring of 95. I was uh, taking a communications one class. I had really no idea about radio. I, I was a communications man. At the time it was communications, but with a concentration in print journalism. So I had written a few articles for the Hofstra Chronicle at that point. Um, didn't really love it. Didn't, didn't really know where I was headed. I was just kind of floating out there, I guess. And by dumb luck, the first day of this communications one class, Professor Hedstrom in one of the lecture halls, I couldn't even tell you what building it was in. um, I sat down and Heather Cohen sits down next to me. And for anybody who's ever met Heather Cohen to know her for one minute, it's like sitting next to your long lost sister you never knew you had. Hmm. And she was the one that said, oh, you're, you, you like, you're doing, you're writing sports. You should do, you should do, you should do the radio station. Why don't you should come down and try it out. And of course, while she's saying this, she's like, come down to Memorial Hall. We're moving all the stuff to Dempster Hall. You could help me move some stuff and you could see the radio station. So <laughs> she's got me interested in what's there. She's getting me to help her move stuff. And so I, my first uh, experience was down in Memorial Hall. Now they had just moved into Dempster. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the timeline works out well here because I we went down into Memorial and and if there had been rats running around, it would have been appropriate. The place smelled like mildew. It looked like a cave and it was being torn apart. So I'm basically carrying crates of albums with random equipment on top over while Heather, of course, is carrying nothing and telling me how great a job I'm doing. And she says, Anne, and she's the only person in the world who ever called me Anne. I don't know how that happened, but. I don't think I'd let anybody else call me Anne, but Anne, you're going to love it here. This is great. You should do this. And I end up getting to Dempster and talk about two different worlds. As dingy as Memorial was, that's how brand new and 
You know, I think of the Titanic movie. You could still smell the paint on the walls. That's how new Dempster was um, with all this brand new equipment, um, bright, shiny. And I said, this is pretty cool. And so with her encouragement, I think that fall, I signed up for the training class in the fall of 1995. You know, back then it wasn't, you didn't have to interview to get on it. it you just signed up and they said, okay. And in I went. And that's how I got there, Heather Cohen. Wow, that's a great story. Um, did you have any expectations of what a radio station would look like before? Like, like as you're having this conversation and you're going, okay, I'll go along. Did you, did you have an idea of what a college radio station would be? I had no clue. Um, the, the closest I had ever gotten to an actual radio station, I think on a Boy Scout trip, we went and saw WGBB, which was the, um, the kind of local public access radio station. And I think it was like Belmore by the Belmore train station. Um, other than that, I had never been to a radio station. I had no idea what I was looking at. And it, it kind of surprised me later on to find out that more professional radio stations had much more primitive equipment than we did over at Hofstra, like our, our, our studios then, and I believe now are state of the art, um, much more so than many of the quote unquote real radio stations, you know, real professional radio stations in the area had a lot um, lesser equipment than we did. So you walk into the station and you see the, the new facilities, the paint on the wall, the whole thing, and you sign up for training classes. Do you remember anything about that? Maybe who taught it or any other students who were there with you? Um, Bruce Avery was basically teaching it directly at that point. Um, but I was in the training class with, I believe Sean Novat was in my training class. Camille Veneziano was in my training class. I, I, I think Anthony Garcia was a semester later. You know, it, it's, it's funny. They all blend together. All the people you end up knowing, it all feels like you came in there together and you know, that can't possibly be true. Mm -hmm. Um, I can, I could say for certain Sean Novat was in my training class. So was there anything in particular that Bruce taught you or that you learned that stuck with you? Any good lessons or, or uh, sayings that stuck with you? Um, don't say Radio Land. I remember that. Don't talk to the people in Radio Land. Um, but it, it's funny. You, you, you learn that the stuff that you've been hearing on the air, why it happens. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I, I listen to ball games on the radio all the time. And you'd wonder why, it, you know, we're going to do 10 seconds for station identification. And what the heck does that mean? Why do they keep doing that? And you learn in the, in, about having to do a legal ID and why the legal ID has to be done, when the legal ID has to be done. And then the next time you listen to a Yankee game on the radio and you hear 10 seconds, six seconds for station identification. OK, now I get why they're doing this. So it was little things like that that made the experience of listening to radio um, and why the things that happen on the air happen on the air. I'm learning them now, kind of like getting an inside look at it. That's the stuff I really remember from it. Hmm, that's very cool. Very inside baseball. It's fun to learn. Do you remember getting on the air for the first time? Not specifically. I know it would have been a jazz shift. Um, I remember start, you know, basically just start starting a shift and going in there and saying, oh, my God, now I'm in charge of all this stuff. You know, and, and, and even though I felt like I paid attention in the in the training class, I'm like, I, I, I probably should have paid more attention in the training class because I'm doing this for real. Uh, but I managed to get through it without shutting down the station. Um, it would have been a shift from two to four in the afternoon. That would have been when I'm doing my shift. Um, and then pretty quickly, I switched over to doing classical music, which as a sports doc, I remember listening to your interview with Thad Brown, and, and I kind of had the same thing. You had to do a music shift to do sports. And 
classical just fit nicely because you put on a classical album and the Fifth Symphony in D by Sergei Rachmaninoff on the classics from Hofstra. And then you had a half hour to do your homework. Uh, and then a half hour later, you would change it to something else and you change it to something else. I remember, you know, as it was going on, watching hours and hours of the OJ trial while doing the classics from Hofstra. I'd have the wow. little TV in the corner on OJ and I'd be and I'd be watching the and I'd be basically watching the board and do my classical shift or doing my homework or getting other work done. So the music was kind of a means to an end for me to be able to do sports. Do you remember getting started with the sports department? Was uh, who was running things then? And do you remember how you approached that? Um, they were lo- basically they'd come looking for volunteers. Anybody they can get, they would they would bring in to their own little fraternity. Is probably the wrong word, but it came to feel like that. Um, Lon Samuelson was the sports director at the time. Thad Brown was, I believe, the assistant sports director. He would go on to become sports director, and. I remember sitting around the table in the conference room for the first time and basically they were assigned, they were signing the games. I guess that would have been for the spring semester of nine 96 and they were assigning the games. It would have been, you know, baseball, softball, lacrosse, um, the end of the basketball season. And they were just assigning games and assigning games. And they said, don't worry if you don't know what you're doing, we're going to teach you what you're going to do by the time you have to do it um and sort of hit the ground running and all of a sudden i'm i'm sitting out at what's probably a 30 degree baseball field doing baseball about a month later and having no ever loving clue what i'm doing but managing to get through the games and and learning a little bit and getting a little bit better every time you do it so were you doing color commentary for those first baseball games or what was going on? And do you remember um, who you worked with? My first baseball game, I'm going to say I worked with Thad Brown. I, I know I worked with Thad more than anybody else that I worked with at the station um, on sports, but I, I'm going to say it was Thad Brown. And with baseball, you would flip, you would do a couple of innings of play-by-play, then a couple of innings of color and a couple of innings by play-by-play and a couple of innings of color. And I, and, and one thing I remember is after the first game, um, thinking, Hey, I did a pretty good job for my first time. And then coming back and basically being told that was terrible. And here's why. Um, and then listening to it back and saying, my God, that really was terrible. And here I thought I was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but you'll learn pretty quickly what to do and what not to do. Um, how do you describe the action? How to say it, to, you know, as Ed Ingalls later on, Ed, I, I, I forget. You know, again, it melds into one long memory when Ed Ingalls got there and started giving us um, some training on how to do sports as well. Time and score, time and score, time and score. Uh, Just doing things like saying the score every once in a while, realizing that people can't see what you're talking about. So don't call it like it's on TV. Call it like they can't see it. Uh, Little things like that. Um, You know, you can't just say line drive base hit. You have to say where the base hit is. Otherwise, you know, somebody who's listening doesn't know what they're listening to little things like that um but you get better at it as you go along what was some of the other stuff that they helped you prepare for uh before doing those early baseball games you said they'll they'll show you what to do we used a box called and i believe it was called a max z um it was basically a phone box that there was a spot for an isdn line which we did not have yet um And then the other spot was it would connect the phone line and you would dial back into the hotline number for the radio station 
and communicate back and forth. Basically, it was just how to get yourself on the air. That was that was the biggest thing. Get yourself on the air. Get the equipment up and working. Um, and the Maxi wasn't in the greatest of conditions, so you were kind of holding your breath every time you dialed that number to see see if you can get through. Um, and then once you were connected, getting the headsets all connected, sounding you know, somewhat normal in them because the headsets, again, got used a lot and wore out very quickly. So making sure you had a headset that actually sounded okay. Um, and then making sure once you did that, that you that you sounded more professional on the air. Um, get all those different steps just to get yourself to be on the air. And then all the steps once you're on the air to have a professional broadcast. And our goal always was to have a professional broadcast. You know, you learned very, the first, one of the first things you learned very quickly is you weren't doing this for fun. Yeah, it's fun to call a baseball game, but you're not doing it for fun. You're doing it because you're trying to get better at doing something and you're trying to sound as professional as possible. And that became very clear to me very quickly that, yeah, it's fun, but it's also very serious business. Was that sense of seriousness and responsibility was that coming from bruce was it coming from lon or thad or was it just a, something that you picked up on um i mean bruce always wanted the station to sound professional um that was very important to him it was very clear he he had basically i think at that point not been there that long but it was very clear he wanted to take wrhu in a direction that it wasn't just a bunch of kids getting on the air having fun it was, we are, you know, he always talked about the mission statement, mission statement, providing professional broadcasting training for interested Hofstra students. And so from the top down, it was definitely, you want to do this and do this as if you're a professional and this is your job. But also from Lon first and then that especially, um, it was, we want to sound like a professional broadcasting station. We want to sound like we're doing professional sports broadcasts because it may not be you but there are people in here who want to do this for a living. And so it's not just we're doing this to call this game. We're creating audition tapes, too. And if somebody's going to be doing this professionally and they're putting down work that sounds like an audition tape and you sound like an idiot next to them, you're ruining their chance of having a career in this. So it was taught to us very quickly. I would say even more so in the sports department than just down from Bruce that we're doing professional work here and you better be on board with that or you're not going to get on air. Sometimes it can be difficult to hear criticisms from your peers or, or someone that you just worked with. And you mentioned earlier that after that first game, and I'm sure thereafter, you listen back and, and you got pointers and suggestions. What was that process like and how did, how did it feel going through that? Were you, were you excited to learn? Was it frustrating? How did that go? Um, I've always been somebody somebody that never took myself that seriously, so I was okay with the. I'm okay with criticism generally. That that didn't bother me. It bothered me to listen back to myself and say, "Wow, I thought I was good, but I can tell myself this isn't any good." That's kind of a culture shock. Um, but it was also good to know you had people around you that knew how to make you better, and do these three things in the next broadcast. And this next broadcast, you are going to give the, the time and score after every single out. And you're going to remember to do it. You're not going to write it down. You're just going to remember to do it. And in the next broadcast, you're going to remember um, to give more color on where the ball is. If you're doing a basketball game, where the ball is on the court, um, build more into that. And 
you improved on a couple of things at a time. It was never, here's 72 things you have to do better. Here's right. three things you can do better in your next broadcast. And then after you do those things better, here's three more things you can do better next time. And so it was gradual. And, you know, within a couple of months, you could see, hey, I'm, I'm getting better at this. I'm still not very good yet, but I'm getting better. And when you realize you're a little bit better each time, it gives you encouragement to keep trying to get better after that. Was there a moment or a game or a season where you felt like, okay, I, I've really got this. I know what I'm doing. I'm comfortable and I can self-critique as, as I'm doing a game or as I'm on the air? It would have been the year I did football. Um, my senior year, which was 97 and 98, I actually did a year of law school also after that. So that's why I was there until 99. I stayed with the radio station even afterwards. Um, but 97 and 98, that was the year that Gio Carmazzi was the quarterback of Hofstra football, and they went to the playoffs that year. Um, I did football that year. And that was the first time. I was the color commentator. Thad Brown was the uh, was the play-by-play. And that was the first time I, I really felt like, hey, I'm good at this. Um, you know, my peers chose me for this job because football was a job that you had to earn. It, not everybody did football. You had one football team for the year and you traveled with the team and did all that. So it was an honor to be chosen for it. And then doing the games and, you know, Thad, who I, I'll say this now, was somebody I very much looked up to. If there was a mentor I had at the radio station, it was him. And to have him saying, hey, you're doing a pretty good job now. And here are a couple of little things we can work on. And then realizing in the game, okay, I need to get out so he can start the play-by-play when there's 10 on the play clock so he can set the play. So whatever I have to say, that play clock's down to 10, I better be done with it. And being able to correct myself like that and shorten, get, get in the points I need to get in, but shorten it. And it was by then that I realized, hey, I'm doing a pretty good job at this. And if this is a career path I choose, I could try to make a go of it. Did you have a favorite sport that you like to call? I loved football. Um, I didn't know it until the end because it was the last sport I did. I liked the other sports. Basketball was fun. Um, baseball, you don't realize how much downtime there is in baseball until you have mm-hmm. to talk through all that downtime. Mm-hmm. And softball was okay, too. It was a lot like baseball, a little bit quicker. Um, I didn't actually do any lacrosse broadcasts. I, I, I engineered a couple of them um, and was kind of an extra production assistant at the field a few times, but I didn't call it. Um, but football was the one I loved. It, it was it was just a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun traveling with the team and going to the different stadiums and everything. That was a lot of fun. Did you have a preference for doing play-by-play or color? I was better at color. Um, football color was all I did. But even basketball, I did some play-by-play in baseball. and softball, you traded it back and forth. Um, I always felt more comfortable as the color commentator. I always say I'm, I'm, a, I'm a better first mate than I am a captain. Um, so especially when you had a really competent play-by-play guy, like a Thad Brown or Alon Samuelson, um, it was much easier to play off what they were doing than to lead the ship myself. Um, it, it also helped that I kind of knew that was my niche. You know, it, it's, it's a lot of, you know, cause everybody wants to be a play-by-play guy, but not everybody's that great at it. I understood that that wasn't my wheelhouse. So I was a lot more comfortable being a color man, which was which was good for me because it got me on the air more because everybody was kind of competing for those play-by-play slots. Like for basketball, for example, you had a play-by-play person, you had a color person. 
Um, everybody's competing, competing for those play-by-play spots. And I just, I'll do color, I'll do color, I'll do color. So I got on the air a lot doing color for other people's play-by-play. Did you find that there was a, a comfort level with working with the sports department or other departments? You said doing a jazz shift or a classical shift. Did you feel getting comfortable either way or was it that you had a, uh, an easier time with one or the other? I'll say this, the sports department, they became like my brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm friends with many of them to this day. So it was a much more closer knit group. I, I got along with everybody, I think. Um, music just became an, a, a means to an end for me. I really, I had, I, even to this day in my car, I barely listen to music. I'm not listening to sports radio. I'm listening to a podcast. Um, I had very little interest in music. So the music side of it just kind of became a means to an end. And then, you know, doing newsline, doing sports reports like that, um, doing sports commentaries on the morning show. Um, those were things that you also, they were requirements of the job, but, um, especially music, it was just really a means to an end for me. I, I, I didn't, I probably looking back, I probably should have taken more interest in it than I did, but it was basically, you were putting in your seat time so that you could get on the air doing sports. Would it be fair to say that you got comfortable at the station socially right away, or did it take some time? I'd say sooner than later, only because you became I became friends with the sports guys so quickly. Um, so almost always there was at least one of them there. Um, Adam Geller I became friends with very quickly. Uh, Dan Gentili, uh, Chip King, Thad, Lon. Um, Vinny Micucci came later. Kevin Winter came later. Um, so we formed a pre- Anthony Garcia. We formed a pretty tight knit group very quickly. And usually when you were there, there was one of them around. And then, yeah, you know, I knew, like I said, I knew Heather. I became friends with other people that were at the station as well. Camila Veneziano um, was a friend. Um, you became friends with enough people pretty quickly that when you walked in, there was usually somebody there, you knew. And then each time you walked in and there was somebody there, you knew somebody introduced themselves to you that you didn't know. So a Sean, Sean Novat, I took the training class with, but a Roman Bielski or a Paul Cordella or a Joe Ramore, they would come in and introduce themselves to you. And every day you kind of knew one or two more people where by the time I was there for a semester, you know, it, it, I was probably at the radio station more than I was anywhere else on campus. Were you still uh, writing for the Chronicle? No, I gave that up pretty quickly. I, I, I didn't have that much of an interest in it. I, I, I started doing it. I didn't enjoy it particularly. So I was the kind of person that says, if I'm doing this because this could be a career path and I don't like it now and it's not getting better, I need to find a different path. So I gave up the Chronicle pretty quickly. I, I probably wrote a grand total of about five or six articles for the Chronicle and then I'm at the radio station and that's where I'm devoting all my time. I want to go back a little bit and talk about, you know, your first impressions of, of working with Bruce Avery. And then if you remember meeting Ed Ingalls, what was that like? And what did you get out of that? Bruce? Um, I did the training class with Bruce. So you got, I got the impression right away that Bruce was very serious. Um, and he was, and he was serious about, making the radio station better and serious about making us better as broadcasters. Now I'm going to be perfectly honest. There, there were times where it felt a little bit off-putting like, Hey, this is, you know, this is an extracurricular activity. I'm, I'm here to have fun. And 
Bruce isn't always about fun. It's about this is a job and you need to take it seriously. And I didn't appreciate it right away that, hey, you know what? We're training broadcasters here. And you're not just like like I said about the sports broadcast. You're not just here just to have a good time. Yeah, you can have a good time doing it, but we're here training professional broadcasters and we take that very, very seriously. With Ed, he came in and for the first time, it felt we like we had a mentor specifically to the sports department that was specifically telling us how to get better at sports broadcast because that really wasn't Bruce's wheelhouse. Um, we were mostly self-teaching up until that point. And Ed was coming in and giving us pointers on how, j- just little things, on how to do a two-minute sports newscast. That was something that we were doing on Newsline before Ed got there. We had no f- clue what we were doing. Um, Ed showed us, here's how you do a two-minute sports cast. Here's how you write a sports commentary. Um, those were the type of things that Ed was showing us once he got there. Did you know much about Ed uh, as a broadcaster before you got to know him as a mentor? Not really. I mean, I had heard him on the radio, again, because I listened to a lot of sports radio, and he was on all the time. Um, so I knew the voice. He sat, you know, Some people have, quote, unquote, radio voice. Ed Ingalls sounded like Ed Ingalls 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so immediately you you recognize the voice. Um, I, 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 I learned a lot more about his career once he got there. And, you know, it sounds silly, but the Internet was just starting to become a thing where you could type mm-hmm. a few bars and look up. Here's what Ed Ingalls has done. Like, holy cow, wow, this guy's been a lot of places. And you learn very quickly. This is a guy I can learn a lot from. Um, but he wasn't somebody who came in touting his resume either. He, he, unless you asked him, he never really talked about what he did. It was always about what we were doing. And again, you don't really appreciate it at the time, but looking back, it's like, you know, he could have been a guy that came in and gave you his resume on the table every morning. He never, ever did that. Obviously getting into Hofstra radio meant a lot to you. And it, and, and it seems like it took up a lot of your time in your college career, but, but, probably not that long before this wasn't something that you were thinking about doing. And you have this, this encounter with Heather Cohen and she convinced you to come down and help with the, with, with moving stuff around and you see the new station at that point, what did you think Hofstra radio would, would mean for you? I wasn't sure it, 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 at, at the time it was something fun to do. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I always had law school in the background as I'll graduate. And if I don't have another path, I'll apply to law school. Um, it was, it was an activity. It, it was a something different to do up until that point. I had gone to my classes. I had done everything I needed to do. I was getting decent grades, but I hadn't really given any thought to Hofstra beyond going to the classrooms and going home. Uh, I didn't live on campus. I was a commuting student and I never really gave it any thought. And the radio station was kind of the first activity that I really got involved with. And like I said, I I wrote a little bit for the paper, but I didn't really feel a connection to it. The radio station gave me a home base for four years. That's what I got out of it more than anything else. Yeah, the sports was fun and all that, but I had a home for, for four years there. And However, my life went after that, and I wasn't one of the people that pursued a career in radio ever. Um, it didn't matter, though, 
because I got something out of it that was so much more important. And I, and I didn't realize this walking in there. I got friends that I, that I've kept for a lifetime. I got sort of a home base. I, I, I never joined a fraternity. I, I, I joined a fraternity of sports broadcasters at WRHU and what WRHU gave to me in that regard. Um, I can't ever pay back. That's a tremendous journey from from a, uh, a a chance meeting, and then obviously this meant so much to you. Uh, I, I greatly appreciate you sharing these stories. This has been uh, a lot of fun, and I'm hopeful that you have more stories because I have some more questions, and maybe we can do this again sometime. Absolutely, anytime you want.